Um, wow, right, okay. Uh, you must get a, grab a chair from uh, Miss Houghton's room, I'm afraid, sorry. I know. It's totally underestimated uh, popularity. Oh, Charlie. Right. Blimey. Okay, when it... Call blimey indeed. When it comes to resources, you're going to we're gonna have to pay nice with them. Right. Okay, we'll get cracking, so I don't want to hold you up any longer than it needs a bit. No, it's great that you've given up an hour of your own time to do this. Really. It would have been nice. All right. So, like it said on Show My Homework then, right, the Russian Revolution tends to be a subject that at A-level, especially if you're thinking of taking A-level uh, history, is, is always there. And if not, you, then at degree level, certainly. All right. And it's one of those uh, events that shapes world history, not just European history, shapes world history, all right? So uh, if you're in year nine, you wouldn't have done this yet, but of course you think to the Cold War topics that um, you're doing in year 10 or you have done in year 11, okay, if it's not for the Soviet Union, potentially that Cold War doesn't exist. So the creation of the Soviet Union is a huge thing. And it's amazing that we get to do this on the actual centenary day. So in Moscow right now, I don't know, but I imagine that there must be lines of people, pretty on the news tonight, Lines of people queuing up to see Lenin's, and you might think, who the hell's that? Well, you'll soon find out. Embalmed body in uh, in Moscow. There were certainly parades earlier on. I saw on the news of people with Soviet flags marching through the streets and all that sort of thing. So it's a real, real big deal. So um, what's what we're going to have to do? Right, I, I genuinely did not expect this many people to show up. So photocopying and stuff is a bit. We're a bit short. I've only done 32 copies of the things that we're going to need, and there's obviously more of you here than that. Um, so we're just going to play that by ear, and I've kind of done it in a sort of style. All right. Yeah. Uh, you might have got to grab a chair from Miss um, Houghton's room. Okay. All right. Uh, so I've kind of done it in a A-level degree style. Okay. I'm not expecting you to sit there and take notes, but this is kind of the experience that you would get at an A-level or a um, degree-level course. Right. If we're sitting comfortably. Then, uh, then we shall begin. Lovely. Okay, here we go then. So, a spectre is haunting Europe. The spectre of communism. All the powers of old Europe have entered into a holy alliance to banish this ghost. It is high time that communists should openly, in the face of the whole world, publish their views, their aims, and their tendencies. That is the opening line of the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. There. That was written in 1848, so a long time before the Russian Revolution takes place. Okay, So this masterclass is not about necessarily what communism is as a theory or an idea, right? but just so there is some sort of clarification, this is how communism is kind of defined. It's a working class movement, and that's key for the Russian Revolution, to overthrow what's called the bourgeois upper and middle classes and replace all land ownership and all private ownership with shared ownership of farming, housing, industry, amongst other things. The idea being that the wealth of the nation is shared by everybody rather than just an elite few. All right? Now, there are historians that are called Marxist historians, okay, and they have suggested that the first time that class struggle became 
a reality was during either the French Revolution in the 1700s or during the Industrial Revolution in Britain during the 1800s, where, where working class people first said, Do you know what, we're not happy with our lot. We don't deserve the treatment we're getting. We want to change things for the better. But obviously, with regards to this talk, we're just going to concentrate on um, the Soviet Union. And we need to put Russia at this point into some sort of context, or the Russian Empire, as it was called then, into some sort of context. So, by the time Queen Victoria has died in 1901, her direct descendants or relatives are on the throne across Europe. Okay, Her son is King of England, her grandson is King of Germany, and I think it's the king's cousin, so whatever relation that makes to Queen Victoria, is the Tsar in Russia, Tsar Nicholas II. Okay, now Britain in 1900 finds itself as the world's only dominant empirical and financial superpower. Britain is today's America or China or however you want to call it. But we are having increasing competition from countries such as Germany and France and whatnot. However, there is one country that has got the wealth the military force and the political clout to actually give Britain a good hiding should it decide to, or to at least take Britain on. And that is Russia. But the problem is, is that Russia finds itself in 1901 and throughout the early 20th century in a complete and utter meltdown. So this is the extent of the Russian Empire you can see there. All right, It is absolutely huge. So when Tsar Nicholas II ascends the Russian throne in 1894, he inherits an empire that stretches all the way from what is now modern-day Poland across the uh, Pacific Ocean and then what is now Alaska. The Americans buy Alaska off the Russians uh, at some point, and I can't remember exactly when that is. But there is growing political discontent in the Russian Empire. Not only is Russia deeply divided politically, but it's divided socially and ethnically as well. Okay, so you imagine all of all of the countries there are today within that empire. Okay, there are always issues that's going to happen, and particularly around this idea that the Tsar has of Russification. That's what he called it. This idea that people living in the Ukraine or what is now Mongolia or um, Korea or all the way over here, all the way over here, that they spoke Russian, they were only taught in Russian, all of their customs were banned, like traditional folk dancing and stuff like that. So the total population of this Russian empire is 125 million. That's double the population of the UK right now, right? That's mad. Uh, the 125 million is made up of 20 different ethnic groups and for every six out of ten, Russian is a foreign language. So if you try and impose this Russification on a group of people, where, or sorry, on an empire where six out of ten people don't speak Russian, that's going to have some pushback. All right. So, um, but Russia not only has all this trouble, it's, it's an autocracy, what's called an autocracy. It's slightly different to a dictatorship. The Tsar basically believes himself to be chosen by God. And the people were taught by the Russian Orthodox Church, right, to treat him as he was a god, to worship him almost like he was a god. All right. So for so far, so normal for like your Russian peasants, which we haven't even got onto uh, yet. So here is uh, Tsar Nicholas II on the left there. He looks if you were to compare him with a picture of um, the King of England at the time. All right. They are at the, the spitting image of each other. 
as your typical Russian Orthodox church there. Now, when he comes to the throne in 1894, this is what he says. He says, I am not prepared to be king or czar. I know nothing of the business of ruling. So this is the first thing we're going to investigate. Is we're going to investigate, first of all, why is Tsar Nicholas II so weak? Okay, and this is where my lack of resources is going to become a bit of a problem. All right, so um, I said we're going to have to, I'll put the lights back on, we're going to have to share this out nice and, uh, nice and wide here. But we're just going to have a look between us at some of these sources to try to get some idea as to why this guy is just not very good. And he was pretty, pretty poor. All right, so if we could just start maybe handing these out, just taking one between like a certain, maybe three or four and pass them around, that would be, that'd be great. All right. So um, it wasn't my intention to to get you to do source analysis or anything like that. I mean, <coughs> as I say, when you go on, if you go on to do A level or degree then you would do this sort of thing in a seminar. You'd go back over your notes and go, right, let's just look at the sources, see, see what it's suggesting. But if you just take uh, source A, for example, right, this is the Tsar's sister. Now, we would expect the Tsar's sister to be kind of uh, backing him up, saying that, no, actually, do you know what? He is, he is a pretty decent ruler. This, and, this, and this gives us a really good insight into just how um, they, they viewed this guy. He had intelligence, faith, and courage, but he was ignorant about governmental matters. Nicky, that's what they called him, his name was Nicholas. So Nicky had been trained as a soldier. He had not been taught statesmanship and was not a statesman. Now, already, anyone want to suggest why this might be a problem? Because we, you know what's coming, but you, we don't know the details yet. Why might this be a problem if the guy is not trained in, in politics or, or governing? Yeah, Hugh? He doesn't know how to handle anything if anything comes up. Good, right. He's got no idea on how to handle anything should anything come up, right? If he's got a problem, someone like Nicholas II, who's trained as a soldier, his first reaction is going to be, I'm going to bring the army in to, to, to quash this. I'm going to bring the army in to stop any sort of uh, dissent amongst my population. And as we'll see, that is a critically fatal uh, move. But even if, I mean, the guy was kind of doomed from, from day one. It's quite a tragic story, the story of the Romanovs. I mean, his son had uh, haemophilia. I was in an awful lot of pain. He had to be carried everywhere. Um, you know, eventually the family are um, all shot by the communists, by the Bolsheviks, and they have their bodies burned with acid uh, in a coal mine. Right? They're just shot and chucked down a coal mine. It's pretty grim. Um, but, I mean, if you read his biography, I'm, I'm not going to read it out, but if you just have a look here, his family have, have suffered assassinations in the past, things like that. It's quite a... It's quite a tragic um, sort of story that we have for uh, Nicholas. Okay. So Nicholas then, he's ruling over this massive empire. Old oh, lads, chairs have to be from his house, Jim. He's ruling over this huge empire, 125 million. But Russia has got more in common with England in the 1300s than it does with Russia nowadays, if that makes sense. So Russia, at the turn of the 20th century would be recognisable to somebody living in England in the 1300s. And I'm not being melodramatic. They'd only just got rid of this system called serfdom, which is what you study about in year seven, where peasants are tied to the land. 
They can't go anywhere without their lords say so. It's a real backward system. But Russia goes on this incredibly quick industrialization process. And it leads to an increased um, working class, a huge working class. Numbers of peasants just filter in from the countryside. Millions of them leave the countryside and go to places such as Petrograd or St. Petersburg, places like this, to take over in factories, to work in factories. Okay, so again, um, just got some more source material for you here. Just what, when you get this, just have a look at the difference in the conditions suffered by the working classes and by the upper and middle classes. All right, the disparity between rich and poor is just horrific. All right, um, especially if you read some of the um, some of the stuff here by Trotsky about what it's actually like to live in the city at this stage. All right, so um, we'll split this up this time. Do this a bit quicker. All right, so yeah, just as I say, just have a little have a little look here and, and just try and take this in as to what Russia must have looked like. Right. So, I think the most. I'll be honest. I did. You know, I had no interest in the Russian Revolution when I was about your age. I'll, I'll be brutally honest. Okay, but the, when I first studied it at A level, the, the the stat that got me was that one percent of the population owns over a quarter of the land. Okay, now that is something that you would attribute to medieval times, right? One percent owned over twenty-five percent. Of, of, of the land is, is absolutely crazy. I mean, if you, I appreciate it's dark in here now, but if you look at the sources, right, <laughs> you've got a typical, so source A, a typical flat in St. Petersburg for factory workers. I mean, I mean, what is that? It, it's, it's just nothing, it's just sheer poverty, okay? You've got then the uh, a dinner party at the, in the palace of Countess Shivalova. Uh, I mean, the, the opulence, right? The, the sheer decadence there, the contrast between A and B, it's insane. And it's no wonder why the workers in Russia began to get annoyed. They began to think, well, hold on a second, just, just what is going on? Why are we suffering when some people live like this? Um, so, yes, yeah, Saul see here by, by Tolstoy, a very famous Russian um, author about this about this prince. The prince proceeded to a long dining table where three servants had polished for a whole day. The room was furnished with a huge oak sideboard on this table, which was covered with fine starch cloth. With love, you know, it just goes on and on and on about how much wealth this guy's got, and yet the majority of the population are living in absolute squalor. Okay, so so situation in Russian cities grows dire very very quickly. Workers are living in slum conditions, the sort of conditions we, that we had in this country uh, not too long ago, about 300 years ago. All right. uh, they are living solely on a diet of vodka, black bread, cabbage soup, and porridge. Right? A very, very unhealthy diet. The workers on the right there are forbidden to go on strike, and they're even forbidden to even ask for better working conditions. Any dissent by the workers or the general population in these cities to try and improve their situation is very quickly put down by the police and the army. And in 1904, Russia finds itself in a horrific mess once again when Nicholas II declares war on Japan over territory in the east of their empire. 
The Tsar's thinking was, right, people are unhappy. What makes people happy? Military victories. So he declares war on Japan. Japan at this stage being a very small power. All right. Now, Japan wiped the floor with the Russians in the war of 1905, and the Tsar is completely humiliated. And it just seemed to prove to the vast majority of the Russian population and the ever-growing number of Soviet and Bolshevik revolutionaries that the government was incompetent. And this led to the first Russian revolution that happens in 1905, where it's called the 1905 revolution. So, more paper, I'm sure you'll be pleased to hear. And the only thing I need you to, want you to have a look at here is what's called the October Manifesto. Because Tsar Nicholas II, in 1905, he still has the support of the army and of the police. And he's able to call on the army and the police to put down the, this uh, revolution. Okay? And he pledges, the Tsar pledges five, sorry, six, pledges six things in the October Manifesto to make life in Russia better. And when you read them, you might start to wonder to yourself, well, why was there a revolution then? What must have gone on between 1905 and 1917? Because all of these six things here, they seem really quite reasonable. All right. So once again, here we go. Here we are, my friends. No problem. So just before, um, there's a question a young lad wanted to ask me. What, what was that? Yeah. Not at this stage. Is it after or before then? This is before they become communists. So, so, so what we're looking at is, is how they become this, this communist nation. So, um, this uh, October Manifesto, this is what the Tsar promises. And it's incredibly uh, liberal, right? It, it is incredibly modern for Russia at this time. All right? so, so he promises the people of Russia freedom of speech, freedom from just arbitrary arrest. So before this, he had a secret police called the Okhrana that could go around and just arrest you. Right? Freedom to meet openly. You were allowed a parliament now called a Duma. They would end censorship and you had the right for the peasantry to form. He puts this in place and it, it's able to uh, sort of keep the Russian revolutionaries at bay. Um, but very, very quickly, the Tsar begins to go back on these promises. Almost immediately, the Tsar begins to go back on these promises. And if the Tsar hadn't been so short-sighted, because he thought it was going to go back to how it was. He thought he put the revolution down don't need to worry that this is going to become a thing again. But it does. All right. And if he had truly reformed, then the revolution of 1917 probably wouldn't have happened. It probably may well have been avoided. But he didn't. The Tsar continues to ignore demands for democratic change. And once again, he establishes that Duma, but he sort of closes it almost immediately. And he rules as an autocratic ruler once again. Now, it didn't help. You might be wondering who this guy is on the board, right? It didn't help that the Tsarina, which is a Russian word for queen, it didn't help that his, his wife, Alexandra, was becoming increasingly under the influence and infatuated by this guy here, by a spiritual healer called Rasputin. All right. Now, some of you, if you, there's a Disney film, I think, with Rasputin in there. Anastasia, yeah. So, now, Alexandra um, was a very devoted wife to Nicholas II, but she was becoming infatuated with the man, and he claimed to have magical healing powers, and he was the only man, the only doctor, in inverted commas, doctor, who could actually cure the young prince Alexei of his haemophilia. Alexei would scream and scream and scream in pain. Any doctor came anywhere near him. Rasputin comes near him, nothing. He was, he was 
free of pain. It was bizarre. Okay, and people, but but people don't trust Rasputin. They don't like him. He literally just wandered in, in into their lives. This 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 spiritual healer, right? Uh, for the critics of the Tsar, it was just another stick with which to beat him with. In so much as, oh, all right, right, your wife's uh, close friends with Rasputin, is she? You know, give it a little bit of that. Like, start to imply that perhaps his wife is not as faithful as she makes out to be. I mean, there's no evidence that, that that ever happened. But this, I mean, Rasputin is a heck of a figure, and he's really interesting. I mean, they, the, um, the Russians actually poison him through putting, um, I think it's arsenic in cakes, or cyanide in some cakes they make for him. And he eats about eight of these cakes, right? Perfectly fine, right? Walks out of the building. They're like, oh my God, he's just eaten about enough cyanide to kill like four men. Still going. And they end up shooting him about five or six times until eventually he dies. So, so, he, was, so he was some weird, some weird bloke was, um, was Rasputin. And this is all before... This is all before the First World War. We haven't even got to the First World War. And so when the First World War kicks off in July of 19... Uh, June, sorry, of 1914, um, Russia join in alongside Britain and France. They join in on the side of, of, the, um, of the Allies against Germany. But apart from a few early victories in the First World War, the Russian army is suffering defeat after defeat. And by the end of 1914, they've lost over a million soldiers. Britain loses that amount of soldiers over the course of the whole war. So it gives you some idea as to, as to how relentless the Russian army may well have been in just sending blokes off to their death. And a lot of these soldiers are really, really, really poor. So the Russian army is horrifically equipped. Most of the soldiers don't have cold weather gear. Hardly any of them have guns or boots. I'm not making that up. They were sent off to war without guns, right? And the situation actually became so bad that in uh, Azerbaijan, or what is now Azerbaijan, uh, in the capital city, Baku, the women laid down in front of troop trains on the tracks to stop the soldiers from going off to the front. So, so these women were willing to sacrifice their lives to stop these men going off to the war. That's how bad the situation was, was uh, becoming. Right, and the war itself places an incredible strain on this czarist system. And when the soldiers that are stationed in the main city in Russia at that time, Petrograd, they revolt and they join anti-war demonstrators, Nicholas was done for. So he'd lost the support of the army. The last thing that was keeping him in power had now gone, right? The Tsar actually resigns. He abdicates in March of 1917. And with him goes a dynasty, the Romanov dynasty. They ruled Russia for about 300 years. So it's a big deal that this family had just resigned, just given up the throne because he no longer had the support of the army. This is what is known as the February Revolution. This is why it's an incredibly tricky subject to teach because you've got the 1905, you've got the February, and then you've got the October Revolution, right? But so far, we haven't even heard, really, the words communism or Lenin or Bolshevism or anything like that. And Russia is in a limbo state with democratic government for the next seven to eight months. They flirt with this idea of democratic government. However, here comes our man. So that's Lenin on the left. Anyone know any idea who that is on the right? Yeah. Uh, that's Leon that is Leon Trotsky. Fantastic. Leon Trotsky. So, 
Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, then. He's an exile in Switzerland. He sticks on his trench coat, puts on a flat cap, and boards a train. Now, it's no ordinary train. Following the February Revolution, the German government, bear in mind Russia at war with Germany, the German government give Lenin a shed ton of money to send him back to Russia to cause a big old commotion. The idea being, right, that if there's some sort of internal crisis in Russia, Russia will probably pull out of the First World War. And Lenin boards a sealed train, so no one can get on and no one can get off. And it goes from Switzerland all the way through Germany. Lenin is miles away from the front line. It goes through Germany, Sweden, until eventually it arrives in Finland, which is then in the Russian Empire, on April the 3rd, 1917. And once back in Russian territory, Lenin publishes what's called his April Thesis, that he basically wanted a workers' revolution. That was Lenin's sole aim now that he was back in, um, uh, back in Russia. Right? Um, now, Lenin doesn't just come out of the blue. He'd been a, he'd been a lead Bolshevik for, for years, and that's why he's in exile. He had to flee Russia after the 1905 um, revolution. But what's amazing is that whilst Lenin's been away, the Bolsheviks, or the Bolshevik party, which Lenin's in charge of, they've been amassing thousands of soldiers. So they've now got 10,000 communist soldiers ready to go. They've been amassing this Red Guard, as they called them. All right? um, and that's just in one city, in Petrograd. So if you imagine that across the whole of the Russian Empire, it gives you some idea as to maybe how popular communism or Bolshevism was to the Russian people. But Trotsky is also an important person. We can't ignore Trotsky. Um, now, Trotsky allies himself very closely with Lenin, and once Lenin's dead and uh, got... Joseph Stalin takes over in Russia. He has Trotsky murdered with a ice pick um, because Stalin sees Trotsky as a threat. Bearing in mind that Trotsky is in Mexico City and he's still murdered with an ice pick. Stalin sent someone to Mexico City to stab him with an ice pick. Why not? Why not? Send a message. Send a message. And so. By November of 1917, Trotsky is able to put together, as part of the Bolshevik Military Revolutionary Commission, 20,000 Red Guards, 60,000 Baltic sailors, and 150,000 soldiers. That Russian uh, Bolshevik Red Army is really beginning to grow. It's Trotsky's planning and implementation of Lenin's ideas that made the revolution a success. Without Lenin, you don't have the ideas. Without Trotsky, you don't have the military might. You put these two together, you get your Russian revolution. So, it's the night of October the 24th. The Soviets go. Okay, They have organized workers' armies across Russia, especially in Petrograd, where the main revolution takes place. The factories, they uprise. And by, the, well, by November the 7th, by the evening of November the 7th, Lenin is head of the government. They storm uh, the Duma that's been created, they, they storm the government, they take it over. The uprising is incredibly violent. We don't have time to go into the sheer numbers, right? And it's got long-lasting impacts, including a massive civil war that takes place in Russia in 19, well, between 1917 and 1922. But it also leads to that grisly execution of the Tsar that I told you about earlier on with the acid and... Uh, and what not. The Soviets, by the way, they, they, they even shot the uh, dog that the uh, prince had. They, 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 they shot him. Little, a little cocker spaniel, they, they shot him. 
But, yeah, you know, why? So, you know, you've killed all bourgeois enemies of the enemies of the working classes. Why not shoot the dog as well? So Lenin has um, created this, this uh, now workers' uh, country, you know, a, a workers' paradise, a working utopia. But the Bolsheviks' success in taking over power, right, again, if, I was to, if we were to go into this properly, we'd be here all night, right? Like the sheer manipulation that Lenin makes of, of, of this fledgling democracy. You, know, you can almost compare it to the way Hitler manipulates the Weimar Constitution, those of you that are in year 11. Right? Um, so we need to actually, before we kind of wrap things up, we just need to look at why the Bolsheviks are so um, popular, why they're so successful. And there are four main reasons. Yeah, yeah no problem at all. You've got the weakness of the provisional government after the Tsar's abdication. You've got the Bolshevik control of the armed forces as a lack of alternative and the role of Lenin. Now, um, I had anticipated here for you to break off into sort of small um, groups, but again, this this isn't going to be um, sorry, this isn't going to be possible. Obviously, with with such large numbers, we're going to have to put the lights back on for this. So. I think what would be quite good, though, is if maybe you could just discuss amongst yourselves when you get these, which one, once you've had a read of these, which one of these is the most important factor in the Soviet success into making Russia this uh, communist nation. And for the final time, you could. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, everybody. All right. So for the final, um, yeah, the final time. Now, before I, I appreciate some of these names on on this sheet, I haven't mentioned Kerensky, Kornilov, this sort of thing. All right. Um, now, these are names of people in the provisional government. Um, and for example, Kerensky is is supposed to be in charge. Right, and he hates the communists, but at one point he has to actually use the communists to put down a revolt led by this geezer called Kornilov. Right, and so the Bolsheviks um, are given weapons, things like that. They're armed by their own um, enemies, uh, I guess. So the weakness of this provisional government that's created once the Tsar abdicates is a major factor. But so is the fact that the Bolsheviks control the armed forces. Um, but as it says there, right, the role of Lenin is absolutely crucial is absolutely crucial. Um, so what Lenin does is he is able to persuade all the different warring factions of communism, right, to all join together. Because as you can see, there, there are different types of communists. There are Mensheviks and socialist revolutionaries and things. And they all follow the same idea of communism, which is Karl Marx's communism, or his idea of communism. And what Lenin did, Lenin's genius was in giving the Bolshevik party very simple slogans to use, like all power to the Soviets, i.e. all power to the workers, right? Peace, land and bread. That's what the peasants wanted. That's what the peasants needed. So it's a very, very simple slogan. And Lenin kind of burns himself out. He has a stroke in 1922 and spends the last few months of his life not being able to talk um, and he, one of the last things he ever does is to say that under no circumstances should Stalin um, become leader of the Soviet Union. But for one reason or another, Stalin actually does. So Lenin could see what kind of bloke Stalin was going to become. 
but somewhere along the line that message gets um, that message gets gets lost. So you can sort of kind of see the the ideas behind what Lenin is is, is getting at in this poster in Source H. Lenin cleans the earth of evil spirits. So communism sweeps away royalty, it sweeps away religion, it sweeps away capitalists, it sweeps away people who, have, who are hoarding the money from us, you know, the, the working classes. All right, so, I mean, as I say, this has been a very, very brief kind of overview of the Russian Revolution, but the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, as give it, to, to give it its full name, right? It was to go on, as we know, to dominate world history for the next, well, however many, you know, 100 years we're still talking about it. But, you know, we studied the Soviet Union really up until 1989 when you're doing your Cold War, until the fall of the Berlin, Berlin Wall, right? It's a nation because of what happens in 1917 that brings the world to the brink of nuclear war in Cuba in 1962. It's a nation that has inspired countries like Cuba, China, North Korea to go communist. Right. And but it's also a country that saw horrific purges take place, especially under Stalin. Right. So one of the greatest genocides, greatest is the perhaps wrong word to use, but one of the most horrific genocides was in the Ukraine in the 1930s, which Stalin himself orchestrated. He basically starves the Ukraine um, on purpose, kills over 30 million people. All right. Um, so it's a. The Soviet Union and Russia, as it is now, right, it's, it's this fascinating conundrum of a country where they have a real strong grip still on their past. They, they, people will today in Russia be celebrating this centenary, but at the same time they have kind of moved on. So this idea of the Russian Revolution still takes uh, very much hold in the Soviet Union. And if there's one thing you should take away from this, it is the slogan of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, the last lines of the Communist Manifesto. Workers of the world unite, all you have to lose are your chains. And you are free to go. There you go. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.